You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Gracious Father, we ask for your Spirit to minister to us today. Would you minister in a way which is so much more than merely the words that I preach? Lord, as your people hear your word unpacked and exposited amongst them, would they hear the voice of the true shepherd, your son Jesus Christ, their Lord and Saviour? And so would that eternal truth resonate in each one of our hearts, in each one of our ears? And would we not only be comforted by them, those words at this time, but would those words carry out the purpose for which you sent it to us, for which you gave it to us? Would you transform us? Would you change us as only you can? So that we, if perhaps we don't know you in a saved relationship, that we would come to saving faith in Christ Jesus alone. And if perhaps we are people who know you, that we would be deepened and matured and grown all the more in love and intimacy and dedication to you. And so, Lord, do that great work amongst us, we pray. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. So we're looking at Malachi. And Malachi is a book in the Old Testament. It's the final book of the Old Testament. It's the final book of what's known as the Minor Prophets. But before I address this, I want... I wanted to remind us, I wanted to remind us of the Apostle Peter's words. The Apostle Peter, in his letter, in his first letter, he calls Christians, you and me, if we belong to the Lord Jesus, he calls us a royal priesthood. Now, we're each to be in service of the Lord, ministering to Jesus, serving Jesus. We're meant to be ambassadors of Christ. If you count yourself as a Christian, That is you. That is me. We are a royal priesthood. We're witnessing to Jesus. That's why this text today, even though it deals with the priests at the time of Malachi, that's why this text directly applies to us as well. If we're Christians, we are each priests of the living God. We're each priests of the living God. So as we look at this passage from Malachi... Uh, Again, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it. It's the last book of the the Minor Prophets. Now, the reason that maybe I'm going through stuff that you already know, but I don't know you, so I I need to go through same ground again, right? If you don't know why it's called the Minor Prophets, the, the, the final 12 books of the Old Testament, they're called the Minor Prophets not because those books are, you know, minor and unimportant, but they're called the Minor Prophets because they're shorter than the other prophets. I believe Pastor Matt went through Jonah just recently. Jonah is one of the minor prophets. It's one of the minor prophets, one of the 12 books of the minor prophets. And I believe after a four-week series, he's going to be going through Jeremiah. I hope I'm not, you know, I hope I'm not revealing stuff that you're not all meant to know. (laughs) But he's going to go through Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is known as a major prophet because it's a major undertaking to read through it. It's long. It's long. So, so the Minor Prophets are 12 books. They're called Minor because they're short. 
Now, if you go through all of the minor prophets, one theme is common to all of them. Each one of the minor prophets speak of judgment, speak of doom for Israel and Judah. Now, as you may know, after, after Solomon, King Solomon, um, soon after that, Israel as a single nation was split into two. Two tribes in the south, which had Jerusalem in their midst, they, they, they took on the name Judah. And then 10 tribes in the north, they retained the name Israel. And, and that's how they stayed. And they were very much at enmity with each other. That's how they stayed until the, the kingdoms, the nations were overrun and conquered by Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south. Now, the book of the Minor Prophets are prophets who ministered to Israel in the north, Judah in the south, through that period. And they speak of the judgment and doom that God promises, that God declares will come on Israel and Judah because of their infidelity to God, because they've strayed away from the Lord. God, in his great mercy, has taken Israel out of Egypt from slavery, from bondage, from death, and planted them into a place, into a land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, to have the freedom and the joy that life was meant to be under God. And yet the Israelites turned their back on that and went after foreign gods, went after idols, went after their heart's desire instead of remaining faithful to the Lord. And so God speaks his judgment and doom on Israel. But while that's the case, while the minor prophets in, in general and while um, Malachi in particular speak of this great judgment, the minor prophets also have a strong theme of redemption, of hope that runs all the way through, all the way through. And the redemption and the hope ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, he speaks, of the, he speaks of the law and the prophets. In other words, he speaks of all of the Old Testament and he says that they are fulfilled in him. Every part of the Old Testament while it's history, while it's real, while it has its, its lessons and its ethical implications for people at that time and for people now, yet more fully, the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament was to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus. And this passage that we're looking at, it flows directly from chapter 1 in Malachi, verses 6 to 14. Now, I know that sounds like obvious. That sounds like an obvious thing to say. You know, passages, of course, the passage that we're looking at flows from verses 6 to 14. But sometimes in the Bible, passages which are adjacent to each other, they address different themes, right? Now, here, what's going on, if I can give you a bit of background, in chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, it deals with the failure and the error of the priests in worship. The priests of Israel, remember the priest's role is to rightly lead people into the worship of God. Now this is important because this is your duty as a Christian, to rightly lead people who do not know the Lord Jesus as their saviour, as their king, to, to, to a right worship of that Christ. That is our duty as Christians. Now the priests in the Old Testament, they, they failed to do this. That's what Malachi addresses in chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. And then in, in this passage, God declares a stern rebuke as a result 
of that failure of the priests. It's a declaration of pending judgment. Now, that judgment is real. This passage does lay out the curse that God declares on those priests because of their evil ways. That's why verses 8 to 9 makes it crystal clear what the failures of the priests were. Now, um, I, I realise that for us we use a different um, English translation. Um, Matt, Pastor Matt told me that you guys use the NIV, and so I went off the NIV, but I think I went off the old NIV, not the updated NIV, so there's slight differences. Please excuse me on that. But in verses 8 to 9 it says this, but you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So verses 8 to 9 clearly lay out the issue with the priests and what God is going to do. There is the judgment and doom that is expected in the Minor Prophets. As I said, throughout the Minor Prophets, there's a thick, unbroken stream of God's grace and love. And we see it in the strong element of God calling a wayward people back. Now you may think, how is this passage God graciously, lovingly, calling people back. Well, look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 and how this passage starts. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If this was nothing more than judgment declared, why call it a warning? What's the por- what, think about it. What's the purpose of a warning? Do we have parents amongst us? Parents... When your children or your child misbehaves, or if you're not a parent, think about when you misbehaved with your parent and your parents called you out. What was the warning for? The warning was change your behaviour, correct it, otherwise you're in strife. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. And so this is a warning, it's a reprimand with a specific and obvious intent from God's, from, upon God's side to correct error. So the implication of this being an, being an admonition, being a warning, is that God is essentially giving to the priests, giving to these failed Israelites a second chance, as it were, a second chance. This point of the, the, that point of this text is more obvious when we consider the literal translation of the Hebrew here. The word that's translated warning for us in our English literally is the word command. And now, you priests, this command is for you. In other words, God is saying, this is where you've gone wrong. This is where you've strayed. This is where you've stuffed up. Come back. Come back. Come back. God is giving to these priests, and therefore us, a gracious corrective. God is saying to the priests, and therefore by extension you and me, this is where you've been going wrong. I'm clearly identifying it for you so that you can correct it. 
So through this passage, I want us to see that God calls us to two gracious correctives. What I mean by that is that God identifies two key areas where the priests have failed God. God explicitly mentions two key areas that the priests have failed God. Then when we understand that the priests have failed God that way in those two specific areas, the reverse of that, the opposite of that, is what God desires of us, is what God wants from us. And so this warning, this command to the priest but also to us is that that we ought to recognise where we have failed in these areas and then be righted, be corrected in these things. So we have the error and the grave sin that's highlighted in this passage, and that shows what our corrective should be. So in this passage, it's really, really simple, and please don't, uh, like, at one level it's really simple because it's stuff that you may hear all the time, but it's so important. The thing about things that the Bible repeats again and again and again, it repeats because, not because you don't know it, but because you don't know it. It's because it hasn't changed your heart. You know about it, but it hasn't done anything to transform you. And so that's why the repetition is there. And so please, as we go through this, there are things that you would have heard, but we need to hear it because we all, each and every single one of us, struggle with these things. And so in this passage, when we look at verse 2, God calls the priests and he tells them that they've failed to honour God. So what's the corrective? Honour God. And then in verse 5, we see that God calls out the priests and tells them that they have failed to fear God. So what's the corrective? Fear God. And so in terms of this passage, this twofold calling that I want to go through is a helpful rubric. It's a helpful structure to flesh out our lives of faith and our worship of God. So two things. Two things. There's going to be sort of subpoints. Uh, my, my, my sermons tend to be sort of like outlines at times. So, so two points and then a couple of subpoints underneath each one. First thing, honour God. Second thing, fear God. Let's go through these things together. Honouring God. Look at verse 2. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. God lays out what the issue is. The priests had not been honouring God. And this dishonouring of God is in two key areas that we see in verse 2. Firstly, they didn't listen to God. And secondly, their heart was not set on God. So they didn't listen to God and they hadn't committed themselves to God. They were sitting on the fence. They had, you know, they had God in mind, but also the things of this world, the things of their own selfish agendas and desires in mind as well. And so those two aspects point us to the corrective. The first thing about honouring God is listen to God. Now, this is very, very important. When I say listen to God, for us as Christians, if we've been in church for a while, all of us go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we ought to listen to God, but... Let me ask you, how many of us genuinely, truly listen to God? You know, there's a huge difference between hearing and listening. A huge difference between hearing and listening. 
Now, of course, they're related to one another. But hearing is merely a function of your ears working properly to capture sound. Insofar as you don't have a hearing disability, everyone hears. Everyone hears. But not everyone listens. Listening is an intentional, active, conscious choice to pay attention to what you hear. And listening properly is actually sacrificial. Let me put it this way. Let me, let me suggest that many of us think that we listen, but we actually don't. Consider the last conversation that you had with a friend of yours. You're standing, I don't know, maybe before service today, or you know, on your way here. And the person that you were with, they're speaking to you. Were you listening to them? In other words, your mind completely devoted to what they were saying, or were you thinking about what you were going to say next? For most of us, it's probably we're thinking about what we're going to say next. We weren't listening. Listening is an intentional, active, conscious choice to pay attention to what you're hearing. The point is that all of us here, every single one of us, insofar as our ears function properly, we hear but not everyone listens. Let me illustrate it differently. After, after our worship today, go down to Strathfield Plaza, right? Go down to Strathfield at, at the square there and get a box, a crate, get up on it and shout to everybody who's walking by, I want to share the gospel with you. Now, I'm not saying go do it. Actually, if you want to do it, do it. That's fine. Do it. That's, that's all good. But, but try it. Now, quite a few people will hear you, but most of them will not want to listen. Standing on a crate in the middle of the square in Strathfield, I want to share the gospel with you. Most of the people will just look at you and go, okay, he's saying something, but not interested, they go on. Now, in the same spot, up on the crate, get a handful of coins. Get a handful of coins and throw it. You know what happens when coins hit concrete. You hear the sound of the coins, right? Notice how everybody turns around and starts looking at the money. They'll look at the money. The clattering of the coins hitting and rolling around on the hard floor will grab everyone's attention. They will turn around. Some of them will even move towards you. Some because they want to help, them, help you, but others because they want to help themselves for that free money. They heard the coins dropping and they listened, they, responsed, they responded because they were interested. That's where their hearts were. And there's a huge distinction between hearing and listening. And what God is saying is when it comes to his word, when it comes to his command, when it comes to him, he needs to be listened to. Not simply heard in one ear and then out the other, but listened to. Hearing is a simple fact of the sound waves triggering the, the biomechanical processes in your ear and sending the sound waves you know, up through electric electrical impulses up to your brain. But hearing doesn't necessarily mean that you do anything with that sound. But when you pay attention to that sound that you have heard, that's when you start listening. And in the context of God demanding that we listen to him, what listening to him looks like is 
obeying him. It's obeying him. Listening to God is a process whereby we hear what God says, accept what God says, and then obey what God says. Now, right now, you're all hearing the sermon being preached. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're listening. I'd like to think that you're listening, but there's no guarantee of that. Now, think about it this way. This Sunday, today, is the 50th Sunday of this year. What that means is, including this sermon, if you've been here every Sunday, you've heard 50 sermons. How many of those sermons did you merely hear but not listen to? In other words, how many did you not only hear but did you accept and did you obey and put into practice in your life? Can you see that for all the sermons that you've heard and all the times that you've read the Bible, if that did not result in acceptance, if that did not result in obedience in your life, you didn't really listen. You only heard. There's nothing more than white noise in your life. God's call here in Malachi to the priests, but also to us is this, honour God by listening to him. Remember, God is speaking here to the priests, people who are already his, and by extension for us, Obeying God doesn't make us God's people. Obeying God doesn't create a relationship with God. Only in Christ Jesus and through the completed work of Jesus can we have that relationship with God. But if that is ours, if we have that generous gift, that supreme gift of Christ Jesus, then we belong to the Lord. We are God's and we ought to listen to him. We ought to listen to him. So honour God by hearing God, accepting God, and obeying God. So that's the first part of honouring God. The second part of honouring God means to commit to God. So in verse 2, the other failure to honour God that is laid out against the priests is that they did not set their hearts upon God. They did not set their hearts to honour God. The phrase is literally, they didn't place their hearts on God. Now, the heart that is being talked about here is not the emotional centre that we think about today. In other words, it's not the idea of feel nicely towards God, but rather, you know, today we make the distinction between the head, which is the space of uh, processing reason and logic, and the heart, which processes emotion and feeling. But biblically, when the Bible speaks about the heart, the heart that is being spoken about is the core command centre of life. It's about what motivates you, what wills you. It's where knowledge is collected, then considered, then a decision made about your life. And so when God says, place your heart upon him, he's saying, make everything submitted to, make everything of your life be done through the grid, through the lens of who you now are Because of the Lord Jesus. See it that way. This is about your will, your motivation. So what this is saying is that the priests did not will themselves to honour God. They didn't commit themselves to honour God. They didn't say as they were going out, no matter what, my non-negotiable in life is to honour God. They probably thought, you know, yeah, okay, as long as everything's okay, I'll honour God. But if things are difficult, or if other things come up, honouring God can be neglected 
or compromised. They did not motivate themselves to honour God above all. Now, this idea of taking God to heart means to determine a course of action in response to your knowledge and your awareness of God. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, think of what God has given to you. Not only in the objective reality of who Jesus is, but what Jesus has saved you from. The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, laying aside his glory to come and humble himself and die for you, for me? And me, when I'm nothing but a deserved recipient of God's judgment and wrath for all eternity, to have my dirt, to have my wickedness, to have my failure, to have my brokenness covered completely, lovingly, by Christ's righteousness. Christ taking my punishment and I'm ha- me having all of his rewards. If you understand that and take that to heart, then how can you not honour God? How could you not honour God? And so what, what God is saying here when he says, place your heart, when he's talking about placing your heart on God, modern phrase would be, make up your minds. Make up your minds that no matter what, because of what you now have and what you now are, because of Christ Jesus, make up your minds that you will not compromise, that you will not stray from what God is calling you to. So this idea of taking God to heart is is to say, commit to God. Now, on this, I want you to understand that God isn't being needy. Now, God isn't desperately asking us, come on, please, guys, pick me, pick me, pick me. God calls us to take him to heart, to commit to God, because he knows that that is the only way of life, only way of blessing, only way of joy. Think about it. Every single one of us, we want joy, peace, gladness in our lives, don't we? Who here is like, nah, not me, man. I, 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 I love me some suffering. We all want the good things of life. Well, God is saying, as your creator, the only way that you're going to get it is in the way that I explain in my Bible. Now, for us, we think, oh, maybe not. I don't, I don't quite get it, so, so maybe I'm going to follow my heart. Maybe I'm going to follow the world because I think that makes better sense. But you don't know. God does. That's why God is calling us to commit to him. Because it is, it is the way, the only way of life, blessing and joy. So you want to see what a life of not, com- not committing to God looks like? You don't need to go any further than the second part of verse 2 and then verse 3. What a life of not committing to God looks like is I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. 
God's literally saying what a life that fails to commit to God looks like is a life where you've been smeared in animal excrement. That's what, it, that's what it's saying. God declares that a choice not to commit to God is basically choosing a curse, a curse to be treated no better than dung, no better than excrement, and that's stark and confronting language. But God is making it clear that committing to God is a life of goodness, joy, and blessedness, while a rejection of God is a life of curses and ultimately ends up on the garbage heap or flushed down the toilet like excrement. It's a choice. But it's a choice between fullness and missing out. Let me explain it to you this way. This is a little story. It kind of helps in the flow of the sermon to give a bit of a break to, to breathe a bit as well. It's like a choice between great, amazing, life-changing food and not having that food. When you think of it that way, it's no choice at all, right? Uh, I remember a time, so, so this was, this was um, earlier on, no, it's not this decade, it was previous decade, okay, it was early on, um, it, was, uh, it was around 2011, um, I, I was doing some extra study at Gordon-Conwell, which is, which is a, um, uh, a seminary north of Boston, and so I was staying at Boston, I was staying in Boston, and then I'd drive up to, to Gordon-Conwell, which is about an hour and a half drive away. Um, and so you'd go, th- go on the freeway, then turn off the freeway, and, and you're almost in a rural part of northeast America, northeast America. And as I was driving to the college the first day, you know, I, I drove and everything, everywhere is pretty wooded, not much, and then out of nowhere it was this random nondescript building called Nick's Famous. Nick's Famous. You can't miss it because it's in the middle of nowhere. So I'm thinking, oh, that's weird. And I, get to, I, get, I got to Gordon Conwell, and th- throughout the, the week that I was there, two weeks that I was there, but throughout the weeks, I was talking with some of the professors. And I asked them, what's some good food around here? Because we had to go out for lunch. Some good food around here. And every single professor says, Nick's famous. Nick's famous. Nick's famous. So I asked, after, after about... About the fourth professor had said that, I said, okay, what sort of food do they have? Because Nick's famous doesn't mean much. They said, roast beef sandwiches. Why roast beef sandwiches? That's kind of rare. That's kind of weird. I was waiting for more, but that's it. Roast beef sandwiches. There's variation. You can get it with cheese. That's it. Right? You go there for roast beef sandwiches. So I thought, okay, well, okay, that, that, everyone's recommending it. I'll give it a go. So I went down one lunchtime. It's about 2 p.m., past the lunchtime rush, but the place was packed and pre-COVID, so everyone's jammed in. I got in the long line, and I ordered a Nick's Famous roast beef sandwich. I got my order. Firstly, I was surprised because, you know, I'm Aussie. Sandwich means sliced bread came in a bun, right? It's in a bun. And the bun was scrunched. It was small. You know those dinner buns where you eat it and it's like, I need another one? It's, that was the size of the thing. And it was scrunched. It was nothing impressive to look at. I thought, okay, well, might as well eat it. Sat down. And I took a bite. 
And oh my goodness, it was so good. Honestly, I recommend to everybody, if you get a chance, go and eat this. It will change your life. It will change your life. It was so good that, no, for me, most people here don't know me. I hate lines. I hate lines. Like, like it's to the point where, um, now, this is kind of extreme, but like um, my last sabbatical, uh, my wife and I took some time off and we actually had uh, the, the, the chance to, to, to go to Paris, to go to France. And, and we, we, went to, um, we went to the Louvre, you know, famous museum, famous gallery. I saw the line and I said to my wife, no, <laughs> we, we didn't go, <laughs> we didn't go, right? That's how much I hate lines. I lined up to get another one, to get another one. And the second one, usually second ones don't match the first, the second one was better. The second one was better. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because if you go to Gordon Conwell, if you're in the area, you have a choice to eat at Nick's Famous or not to eat there. It is a choice. But it's a choice between amazing fulfilment versus missing out. And that and so much more is a choice that God is calling us to when he calls us to commit to him. God calls us as his people to choose whom they will serve and love and honour. But it's a choice between blessing versus curses. Now sometimes that choice doesn't seem too impressive. Sometimes committing to God can, can look like that roast beef roll. Isolated in the middle of nowhere, a scrunch bun, nothing amazing to look at, especially when you consider the glitzy things in this world. But one bite, one bite transforms your life. Is it any wonder that the psalmist again and again and again says that he urges us to taste and see that the Lord is good? Taste and see that God is sweet. God calls us to make up our minds, to take God into our hearts. Jesus himself makes this same call to us when he declares, you cannot serve two masters. You see, to commit to the Lord is a life of blessing, joy and peace, while committing to anything other than the Lord is a life of curses, hatred and wrath. So the first gracious corrective that God calls for in our lives, is to honour God by listening to God, that is, hearing, accepting, obeying, and then to honour God by committing to him. And the next thing is to fear God, to fear God. That's the second corrective. Now, this fearing God is not a cowering, scared, afraid, panicky fear. This fear of God that the Bible calls God's people to is a reverential awe. It's to respect God. Now, we're all, most of us here, um, I think, Aussies. And being Australian is great. But one weakness is that we're very, very flat when it comes to, comes to respect and honour. Right? And so we're not used to honouring or respecting. Like, I get this from my American pastor friends all the time. They can't get used to, they come here, and everyone calls them by their first name. Right? It's like, pastor. 
pastor. Right? I was talking with a recent... Um, so, so I went to Christ College years ago, and I was talking with a recent guy who's there as a lecturer. He's, he came from America. And, and I was just talking with him. I just asked him about that, and he goes, you know, you know Steve, you're, you're right. It's so... I still cannot get used to it. I spent so much time and effort to get the doctor in front of my name. At least once, I'd like my students to call me doctor, but it's always by my first name, right? But this idea of fearing God is to have a right respect, a right awe, a reverential fear. And we see this in verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. And what God is doing here is calling us, is calling you and me to a right fear of God. Not a cringing, timid, withdrawing, scared fear, but a healthy awe, a respect for God. And what that looks like is unpacked in the rest of the passage. So four quick things to know. What it means to fear God. Firstly, what it means to fear God is to know his truth. Verse 6 starts off by saying, True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. And verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Now for instruction to be true and knowledge to be guarded, this means the truth must be known. And so we're being instructed here that one thing that fearing God, being in awe of God, respecting God is, is to know his truth. To know his truth. This means that we must be students of God's word. Studying God's word is not just the duty of a pastor. It's not just the duty of the leaders. It's your duty and privilege if you call yourself a Christian. So, fearing God firstly, know his truth. Secondly, love his truth. Love his truth. We see this in the second part of verse 6. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. This shows that truth is not just something that needs to be known alone, but it needs to be lived out day to day. That, that idea is conveyed in the phrase, he walked with me. In other words, it's the idea of being in step with somebody. Being in step with somebody. And when you love someone, you know them, when you get to deeply, intimately be connected with them, you match your stride, not only physically, but also in the things of life. So if you go, if you go, somewhere, with, if you, if you go somewhere with a married couple you'll see things that, that they do automatically that can only come about if, if they've lived with each other and know each other and love each other and walked with each other for a long time. So if we go, if we go to a restaurant, like, yeah, I think it's okay for my wife. I think it's going to be okay with my wife if I share this. Everyone knows. Um, my wife is not so keen on vegetables. <laughs> In particular, she does not, she cannot eat cucumbers. So, you know, we go somewhere, if the cucumbers are in a plate, like, she does, either she just dumps it onto my plate or I get it onto my plate. Right? We don't even talk about it, it's just an automatic thing while we're talking away. 
And so, so if people are with us, we may think, they may think, oh, why is he stealing her cucumber? <laughs> he must really like cucumbers. No, not really, but I, I can eat them. So, so the idea here is that walking is that idea, walking with each other is that idea of matching and loving, in, loving each other that comes from a deep life lived together. That's what it means to love God's truth. You embrace that truth and you start walking in it and continuing in that truth. In other words, you see what is needed and you match your life to those things. And the third part of fearing God is sharing his truth. Verse 6 again. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. If you genuinely love the truth that you know, you'll share it, won't you? If you genuinely love the truth that you know, you'll share it. I didn't mean to talk about this, but I bring it up because Pastor Matt asked me about it earlier. My dad is a forever Windows man. But you know what I do? I try and bring him out of the darkness into the light. (laughs) Get a Mac. Hasn't worked. But the point is, if you genuinely love God's truth... You're not going to hold it to yourself. You'll share it. It's not forced, although there are times when you will intentionally share. It's part of your DNA. It's part of your makeup. So in summary, the first gracious corrective that God calls for in our lives is to honour God. Honour God. How? Firstly, by listening to God. And what listening is, is hearing, accepting, obeying. That's how we honour God, first part. The second part of honouring God is by committing to God. And then the second part, the second part is to, to, um, to fear God, to fear God. And we do that, how do we fear God? By knowing his truth, by loving his truth, and by sharing his truth, to have that right respect. So then... Is that what we do when we go away from here and happily ever after? As we conclude, I want to end by pointing to Jesus. The reason that I do that is because Jesus alone is the one who fulfills, who fulfills all of this for us in a way that none of us ever can or ever will. You see, everything that verses 6 and 7 speak of can never be fulfilled by us. The great failure of the priests that Malachi is exposing is actually a reminder that the greatest need that all of us have, all of us have, is not better priests, it's not better pastors, it's not for us to be better people, But the greatest need that we have, every single one of us, is the perfect one who is not prone to any of the failures that you and I are. Now, of course, we as God's people are called to these correctives 
that reflect God's standards. But we're called to this not so that we can become God's people, but because we are God's people. And we are God's people because Jesus, our great high priest, has already fulfilled to the utmost all that is expected of a perfect priest. He is the one. Jesus alone is the one who fulfills the words of verses 5 to 7. Those words speak ultimately of Christ, not any one of us. God's covenant was with Jesus, a covenant of life and peace, and God gave them to Christ. This called for reverence, and Christ revered the Father and stood in awe of the Father's name. Eternal God, yet he humbled himself and submitted to the will of the Father. True instruction was alone in Christ's mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. Christ Jesus walked with the Father in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. And you and I, if we belong to the Lord, count ourselves in that number. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from Christ's mouth men should seek instruction because Jesus is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. You see, there's a real danger for us to seek some other place or some other person to fulfil that which only Christ Jesus can. But not only is it a case that only Christ can fulfil it, but praise God, he already has. He already has. No one else could do it, but Christ has done it. That task that any of us who belongs to the Lord is not so much to fulfill these things for each other, but even as we strive to honour God and to fear God, to do those things to point to Christ Jesus alone. Because only Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He alone He alone can wipe away every tear from our eyes. He alone can strengthen our weak and feeble hands. He alone can give you sustaining grace in the darkest of the valleys of life. He alone can satisfy your heart with an abundance of genuinely good things. Christ Jesus alone is the one that you need. If you have him, praise God, God has made him yours. So let's look to him. Let's lean on him. Let's cling to him. Let's point to him. Let's proclaim him. Not just when we gather as church. Do it when you're as church, but not just here. Every moment of your day, every moment of your life, with every ounce of your strength, with every fibre of your being, honour God. Fear God. This is the gracious corrective that God is calling you and me to. May that be an increasing reality for each one of us today. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your son Jesus and how all of the Old Testament scriptures ultimately point to Christ and are fulfilled in him. 
Lord, as we see this great indictment, this terrible indictment on the priests that your servant Malachi laid those many years ago, it's not a case where we just tut-tut them, but we realise that it's so true of us. There have been so many times that we have failed to honour you, so many times that we have not feared you the right way. But thank you, Lord, thank you, God, that in your son Jesus, you've given to us the one who's perfectly fulfilled all of your demands such that none of the curses, none of the curses would apply to us anymore. As we realise this, would this free us to a more willing, gracious, glad obedience before you? in all of our lives, in all that we do, with all of our hearts, would we seek to honour you and would we seek to fear you? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.